a year ago, we started looking at um, a new series called Focusing on the Christ. And as we began focusing on the Christ, we said we were going to look at starting from the Old Testament. Because the coming of Christ is really central to all of history. It's, it's, it's central to the, the entire Word of God. If, it's, if Christ would not come, if Christ would not have died and was resurrected for us, then really there's no reason for the Bible. Does that make sense? I mean, it's all, it's all meaningless. And so we began looking at that from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament, we began looking at the shadow of Christ and the, the, the teaching of Christ's coming and, and the prophecies and the types of his coming. And then we moved into, transitioned into the life of Christ last summer, end of spring into summer, looking at the birth of Christ and then into the ministry of Christ. And hopefully you remember some of that. And then we moved into his arrest. We looked at his death. We looked at his resurrection. We looked at his ascension. And then um, in the fall, we began looking at the return of Christ. And we looked at the return of Christ during the same time as we were looking at the birth of Christ with Advent. And so during those first four weeks of Advent, from the end of November in through the December, we looked both at the return of Christ while we were looking at the advent of Christ, his first coming, as well. And then last week, we transitioned by looking at the reign of Christ. And last week, we looked at the, the future physical reign of Christ. And today, we want to look at the, the next segment, and that is we want to look at the present spiritual reign of Christ. And we want to start off by looking at the existence of that spiritual reign. And, you know... Last week we talked about the fact that there's a lot of people who um, they reject the future physical reign of Christ. They don't want to believe in the millennium. And as we finished out the book of Isaiah this morning, Isaiah 66, again we saw that God culminates the whole prophecies of Isaiah talking once again about how Israel is going to come back into the land and that all the nations are going to come into Jerusalem to worship. And so God over and over and over, over again says that. But that's future. That's future. That's We're looking forward to that occurring. But that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't reigning now. Because, in fact, we know Jesus has been reigning how long? Since creation. We know from John 1 that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And so Jesus was actually intricately involved in the creation. He is Yahweh, he is the one who created all things, and so as the creator, he is the ruler of all nature and all nations, as we just sang with Ferris Lord Jesus. Okay? But specifically, if you would turn with me to the book of Luke, um, to Luke chapter 17, where we want to read Jesus' comments that he makes as he's talking about the end times. And we looked at these passages when we looked at the return of Christ. And we talk about that, that the second coming, his second coming. Um, but within Luke's context of it, he gives them a little bit more, beginning at verse 20 for the, the, the context here. We read, Now when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Now, it's really interesting. When he answers the question, he says, they're asking for the physical kingdom. They want to know, when is it going to come? You know, are you it? Are you the Messiah? Are you going to reign? So if you are, when's it going to happen? And he says, you're looking for the wrong thing. The kingdom's not going to come with observation. Rather, the kingdom of God is where? It's in within you. And the Greek word there, entos, literally means to be inside of. Okay? It comes, it's derived from two words, en and tos, okay? In the word en, the Greek word en literally means to be 
in. So if you have a box, you know, I'll use your props. Okay, thanks for bringing props. Appreciate that. In, in literally, we've got we've got a cowboy. I know he's got a name and I can't remember, but that's okay. I didn't see the movie. Woody, thank you. I see you guys know this one. Shame on you all. Anyways, um, but but Woody is inside the package. But he's not in there by himself. He's got a horse with him. I mean, it makes sense in a gate to, for the horse to jump over. Anyways, this could be fun. Anyways, sorry. You can bring him back. You can have Noah's Ark and Noah could be in there. But anyways, but it's like that. They are in the container. Do you understand? That's the idea. When Jesus talks about it, he says the kingdom of God doesn't come with observations. Rather, it's what? It's inside you. It's going to be inside of you. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus at night? Nicodemus came in at nighttime. He says, you know, teacher, we know that you must be from God because nobody could do the things that you're doing if you weren't from God. And he says, you know, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus says, you must be what? You must be born again. And, you know, you need to be born of the water and of the spirit. And Nicodemus turns to him and says, how can I what? How can I get inside my mom's womb again? I mean, this, it can't happen this way. And he says, you're missing it, dude. You're, you're, you're totally missing this thing. And he, so he talks about how the, the, the wind blows and you can, you can see the wind blowing. Or actually, you can't see the wind blowing, but you see the what? You see the effects of it. You see the results of it. He says the same thing with the, the Spirit. You can't see the working and the movement of the Holy Spirit, but what you can see is the effects. And the same thing comes, and we're going to see that in a moment, but with this existence of the, the spiritual reign of Christ. It's not something that you're going to observe with your eyes when somebody gets what? Saved. Did you see anything happen? I mean, you know, I, I'm thinking of the, the movie Courageous, you know, a little bit here, and I'm thinking of the, the taser, thing where they tasered the guy. I mean, have you seen Courageous? Anyways, okay. Did, did you remember seeing when they did it? They had a little light effect that went around them, so you saw what was happening, you know? I don't know if, has anybody ever seen anybody tasered? Does it really happen that way? Do you actually see a, an arc going on? You don't see it, or you haven't seen it? You don't see it. Okay, so they put that there for us to, th to know that something was going on, right? Um, anyways, but that, that's kind of the effect. You know, you don't see when somebody gets saved that all of a sudden they get this spiritual charge. Wow! Wouldn't that be pretty cool if it happened that way? Because what? You would what? You'd know. There wouldn't be, you wouldn't be sitting there doubting sometimes, you know? Boy, I wonder if I was ever saved. Oh, yeah, I remember the glow that came up. Oh, yes, I was really saved. You know, and so it, then you start to wonder whether I what I lost the charge. Do I do I need to get back on a charger? Okay. Well, Jesus says it's not going to come in an observable way. It's going to just happen from within you. Okay. And so turn with me to to John 14. John 14, as Jesus talks about this. Now, what was neat as you turn in John 14 as well, this word inside, the only other place this word inside is used. Thank you. Is in Matthew 23, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees as well about their their uncleanness, and he tells them, first you need to clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will be okay. Okay, And so John 14, in John 14, 15 to 17, we want to read first. Okay, And it says, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither what? Sees him. Neither sees him. Because it doesn't come with what? Observation. Get it? Okay? It neither sees him, nor does it know him. But you know him. Why? Because he dwells with you and will be 
in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Drop down to verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He's still thinking what? Physical. He's thinking physical, right? And Jesus turns around to him, verse 23, and says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. What is Jesus saying is going to happen after he leaves? He's going to send who? The Holy Spirit. And where's the, what's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's already convicting the world of righteousness, judgment, and sin. So specifically for believers, what's he going to do? He's going to come in and dwell you. And not just the Holy Spirit's going to come in and dwell you, but what else does he say here in the same passage? The entire Godhead is going to come in and dwell you. And so he says, when you accept Christ as your Savior... God comes to reside in your heart. That's a pretty cool thing. I don't know how often you meditate on that. But if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you honestly have received him into your heart, then God came and took up residence in you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 2, verse 20, you can turn there with me. A passage that probably many of you have memorized, talking about I've crucified I'm crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Okay, but what? Christ lives in me. Okay? And so we read it together. Galatians 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so I have been, when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, Romans chapter 6, I've been crucified with him. I died with Christ. But then I rose again with him in his resurrection. And what happened? He came and he took up residence in me. Okay? And so Jesus literally is living inside of me. Now that's kind of a mind-boggling thing because I know Jesus is where? Sitting at the right hand of the Father. Yes, exactly. And so he's sitting at the right hand. We talk about in Sunday school, we're talking a little bit about the time continuum and stuff like that. And, and that just the, the mind-boggling process of God creating time, and yet he's outside of time, and, and how all does that kind of go together and fit together, and it was kind of hard for us to comprehend. The same thing here. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he and the Father are what? Are one, and yet they're living where? Within me. It's a mind-boggling thing. Turn with me to the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 16, Paul writes to the, the believers of Corinth, he says, do, not, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And turn to the end of chapter 6, verse 17, where he asks the same question basically again to them as he continues to go through all these um, items that he's dealing with them on sin and stuff. And he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay? Clearly, overwhelmingly, the Scripture teaches us that what? When you get saved, go back to what we said there in John 14, when you accept Christ as your Savior, what happens? God comes and lives inside you. 
there is the existence of this spiritual reign of Christ. And where is the place? Last week we talked about the location of the future physical reign, and that was going to be in Jerusalem. I'm not putting it up there as a point, but this is a little bit of a concept of a sub-point here. Where is this present spiritual reign at? Within the heart of a believer. Within the heart of those who believe in Jesus Christ. If you're here today, and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then Jesus Christ should be reigning in your heart today. If you're here today and you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never come to that place where you honestly have never done that. He isn't there. He's not reigning in your life. The Holy Spirit may convict you, but until you've responded to that conviction and you've accepted Christ as your Savior, He's not reigning in your life. You still are. But as you're going to see for us as we discuss this quickly this today, for us as believers, we have another struggle. And that is not just the existence of the spiritual reign, but what does it look like? And we want to look at the evidence of the spiritual reign. Now, this is a, going to be a very quick message. It's amazing. I know many of you are going to kind of say, no way. There's no way. No way. Because we're going to be spending the next so many months dealing with this whole subject. Okay? So, um, and in this evidence of the, of the spiritual reign of Christ, the reality is we see in, in Luke chapter 6 that Jesus says to his disciples, okay, and it's up here on the screen, it says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Why? You, know, you almost think these are separate concepts sometimes, but Jesus links them together. He says, why? For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its what? Fruit. In my backyard, I have a mini orchard. We have a little plum tree. Now, for years, I thought there was a, there was a problem with my plum tree. Because my plum tree only grows plums that are about this big. I'm used to being up north. I'm used to plums being what? Nice, big, purple things, right? And so I kept waiting for these things to get bigger and bigger. And by the time I waited for them to get bigger and bigger, they what? They fell off the tree and rotted. And I'm thinking, man. And so finally last year, or maybe it was two years ago, time flies when you get old, you know, I finally started eating these teeny-weeny plums. And boy, were they good. And then I found out that there's actually things as miniature plums and you know and stuff like that so now i didn't buy the tree somebody gave it to me so i've got plums but you know what it's been amazing to me even though it took me this many years to figure out that they were miniature plums i never confused the fact that i that i had oranges or figs or olives or peaches i wasn't worrying whether they're apricots i always knew they were plums does it make sense and in my backyard, I have a pear tree, and I have a couple peach trees, and I have some apple trees. And it, Now, I did have a fruit cocktail tree, but God wiped it out. He said it, it wasn't biblical. Anyways, I guess. Um, and on that tree was supposed to grow peaches and, and, and plums and nectarines. Okay, I only ever got peaches off it. I think I must have pruned it too much and got rid of all the other grafting and stuff. I don't know. And then God wiped it out. Anyways, he said it's not natural. Anyways, but it was a good biblical illustration for how we're grafted into the tree. Anyways... But I knew, I know what's going to grow in those trees. I don't go into the year thinking, wow, I wonder if this year is the year that I'm going to get bananas. 
I've never planted a what? Banana tree. So, Jesus says, every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from a thorn, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man, verse 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now look at how he ends all this. Okay, This, this all goes together. He says, but why then do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Those who are called Christians, or who call themselves today Christians, many times refer to Jesus as who? Lord. But we neglect what the actual term Lord means. What is a Lord? A master. It's a person who has power and authority over others, such as a monarch or a master. One who speaks and the follower does. If you've ever gone through boot camp, I haven't, so I can't speak this from perfect knowledge, but my wife has, and my, my dad has, and stuff like that, so I've heard others have done this. But if you go through boot camp, you have a what? You have a drill sergeant. You have a DI, a drill instructor. Now, I understand that, that the Army's trying to dumb that guy down and, 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 and get rid of his power, but if you went through years ago in the real Army, right, right Rodney? Okay, Greg, you remember those days? Okay. What would be another name that you could give that guy? He would be Lord. Not, not the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, yeah. But when he spoke, you did what? You listened. If he said jump, you were supposed to say how high. See, you all know that, okay? Well, that's the concept of the master, the Lord. We kind of missed a little bit of that because we can go and get another job. But in the concept of being a master, if you were the slave, if the master told you to do something, you did it. And if you didn't do it, you would be punished. Yes, exactly. He had, he had full authority over you. Well, that's the concept of Lord. Jesus is supposed to be your Lord. Now, I'm not talking about Lordship salvation. Understand, I've already discussed the fact whether you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. But when you accept him as your Savior, one of the things that goes along with the territory is understanding that he is who? He is the Lord. He is your Master. And those terms he used purposely. And he said, defining this, that you will know who truly are his based upon what? The evidence that comes out of their life, which ultimately is coming out of their heart. Because where do you believe? In your what? In your heart. So when you accept Jesus Christ into your heart, what should happen? You should have a heart change. Now, I understand it's not, whoosh, boom, totally 180 degrees, you look like Jesus totally right now. But what should start to happen is there should start to be a what? There should be a progression of change. There should be a changing of the landscape of your life. And if someone looks at your life and they see a tree that is producing thorns, not roses, just thorns, and it's not producing godly fruit, then what can they start to assume? That nothing ever happened. That's exactly right. 
Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the what? Branches. He that abides in me and my word abides in him, the same shall bring what? Forth much fruit. That's right. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, in Matthew chapter 7, he uses the same analogy, adds a little bit to it for the disciples um, at the, this time when he spoke it. And he said, beware of false prophets. And we read this in our, our, our Bible reading this morning. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Every so, even so, every good tree bears for, brings forth good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonderful works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There has been in our culture over the last generation this putting forth of um, easy believism. Now, I'm not picking on that, just like I'm not going to pick on lordship salvation. But the two are opposite of each other, and they came as a result of each other. And there was a, John MacArthur preached a message years ago um, on lordship salvation. Okay, Now, he's kind of gone back off of that a little bit. Okay? But it, it, when that message was preached, it caused this great furor in Christendom and, and this whole lot of stuff coming out about what, what do you need to do in order to be saved? And so that came, coming out of that was this thing of easy believism, you know? And John MacArthur, though, on the same side, was kind of going against this easy believism. And so it's just kind of this battle going on. Well, the easy believism side, if you would, and I'm just characterizing, if you would, basically says that all you have to do is say the sinner's prayer. You just say you believe in what? You're saved. It's a done deal. And, and we see that in so many churches where they have the invitation at the end of the service that you come down, to the, to the altar, and you're what? And you're saved. Well, are you saved? Well, I went to the altar when I was a little boy, when I was three years old. And I said that prayer. Well, the prayer doesn't do anything for you, folks. I'm sorry. If you're trusting in a prayer, and not in the, 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 the object of the prayer, you're not saved. I don't want to be the one who's being rude. But that's just a fact. If you're, I mean, there makes nothing difference between a Baptist or a non-denominational person, whatever you want to call it, that who says a sinner's prayer in a Catholic person who says it, uh, uh, our Father or Hail Mary or the Rosaries, because the Catholic person is trusting in what? The prayer, and so they go to the they go to the confessional and the Father says to them and they say, "Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned." And he says, "If you would say five Hail Marys and a couple Our Fathers and go through the Rosaries three times, God will forgive you of your sins." Right? And so they go and they say these prayers and they they trust in their prayers to forgive them of their sins. It's the same thing. You say a sinner's prayer. That prayer didn't do anything for you. And if you trusted in the baptism, the baptism only got you wet. It's the faith. It's the faith which derives from the heart. And there's too many people who have an intellectual scent and not a heartfelt commitment to Jesus Christ. It's that heartfelt commitment, that understanding of who you are and who he is and the totally giving yourself over to him now, that doesn't mean you'll be perfect. That doesn't mean that you give up smoking cigarettes or drinking booze or, or whatever your, your sin is, okay? 
I mean, I could go into a list of sins, and that's not the idea of it. Because that's lordship salvation. That's saying that you're going to give up all these things in order to be saved. And that's not what Jesus teaches. But what Jesus teaches is that you're going to give up yourself. Do you get it? That I understand I can't save myself, that only you can, and that when that happens, he comes to live within and reigns within, and when he reigns within, he begins to do what? Change me. And he begins to dictate, and he begins to to instruct me. And then if he's really the Lord of my life and living in my life, what do I begin to do? I begin responding to his, his teaching. Do you get it? That's the spiritual reign of Christ in my heart. And so Jesus said, he said, there are going to be some that come to me in that day, and they're going to say, like, that one. Where he said, remember, in the Luke passage, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I tell you to do? Here he says, there are going to be people who come to me in that day, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord. They're going to use the name. Oh, Lord, Lord. Did I not, did I not, did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not do all these wonderful works? And the reality is what? You didn't do a thing. Who accomplished the work? God did. And just as God used Tiglath-Pileser, and just as God used Shalmaneser, and you say, who are those guys? Those are Assyrian kings that he used to punish um, Israel and Judah. And just as God used Nebuchadnezzar, and just as God used other kings, ungodly kings, kings that, that weren't worshipers of God, and God used them to enact his judgment upon other lands and other nations, just as he can use people today. And so, First Corinthians chapter, Second Corinthians chapter eleven, Paul says to the Corinthians, he "says I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, because I'm fearful that someone may come in with another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit, and you may very well accept them." And then he goes on and talks about these false apostles, and he says that they are workers of the devil. He says, for it's no marvel for Satan himself transforms himself to be an angel of light. Therefore, it's no wonder if his if his workers also transform themselves to be what? Ministers of righteousness. That means that there are men, women, standing in pulpits, acting as ministers of what? Righteousness, who really are what? Workers of the devil. And it's not my job to tell you which ones they are. But I'm telling you, when they come, they're going to come to you with a different Jesus, or a different gospel, or a different spirit. Does that make sense? And that's hence we're memorizing the book of 1 John, John's first epistle, right? And it says that you have to test the spirits. And you have to determine, like we're, we're memorizing this morning, or this, this month in 1 John 4, it says, um, he, um, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as the world. There are those who are coming, and they're not of God. Jesus said, there's going to be some who come to him in that day, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do these things? And he's going to tell them what? You're wrong. I haven't been. Depart from me. I didn't know you, son of lawlessness. What's lawlessness? Without law. Without God's law. You know, a lot of times we, we say that, that you know, and I, I hate this in the New Testament church thing, that the law has been destroyed. Now, I'm not under the, the law. Do you understand that? But does anybody know what the New Covenant is? Ah, the law is written on my heart and in my mind. That's exactly right. No longer am I under the law, but knowing God, His law is written in my heart and in my mind. Think about it. One of the things with the Holy Spirit coming to dwell within me, the job of the Holy Spirit was to convict me of righteousness, judgment, and 
sin. He convicts me. And so if the Holy Spirit is residing within me and one of his job is to convict me, then he's what? He's convicting from within. That's exactly right. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. A lot of discussion about predestination, foreknowledge, election, free will of man, and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know where I'm at on all that, that I think that's a, it's a mystery of God that, that God has left for us to, to play with and to toil over and not understand. And, and people have made these theological positions, and um, they put God in a box, and they, they explain it all. But one thing I do know, I know what God has declared about things, right? And so I know I believe in predestination. I know I believe in election. I know that I believe in free will. You say that that doesn't make sense. It does, because God's word declares all of them. But here's what I know about predestination. Turn with me, if you're hopefully there in Romans 8. I'm going to start at verse 28 for context, because you know this verse. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, and here we have this foreknowing being thrown into here. He also predestined for what purpose? to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Before the foundations of the world were laid, Christ died for us. And he predestined us for a purpose. What's the purpose? To be conformed to his image. To look like Jesus. To take upon ourselves more and more the appearance of Jesus Christ. And so, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, again, a passage that we, we talk about a lot, okay? But we can talk about it all the time, but are we past, are applying it? Where Paul says to the Romans, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of service or worship. And do not be conformed to the world, but be, rather be transformed in the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that you can do what? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, so that you can do what? Take your eyes off of the world, and put them onto Jesus, onto God. And then what's going to happen? You're going to be conformed, Romans 8, right? You're going to be conformed to the image of his son. And what's that going to look like? It's going to look like somebody who is going to do the will of God in their life. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was on the earth, when they asked him about his purpose? And what did he say his will was to do? The Father's will. Whatever he saw his Father's doing. And so that's his purpose in life. He was not going to sway from it. He was not going to veer from it. Remember? We talked about that when we went through the life of Christ. That that was his purpose in life, was to do the will of God. And that's what we are called to do. We're called upon to look like Jesus. Which means that just as, as Jesus on the earth considered his father what he said I'll do, so me living on the earth, if I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and he's living in my heart and the Holy Spirit is convicting me in my heart, then it should be a matter of what I see him say or hear him say I should what? I should do. There is the transformation process that goes on. So, the evidence of the spiritual reign of Christ. It's the what? 
the fruit of my life. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the next two weeks. The next sub-series we're getting into is the reflection of Christ. We've looked at the, the return of Christ, the reign of Christ. We're going to be looking at the reflection of Christ. And the first part of that reflection of Christ is the individual reflection. And then after that is the, is the corporate reflection. And we're going to be spending a couple months on the corporate reflection as how we as a church, how we as a body, are supposed to be reflecting Christ to the world. Okay? But the, the, the next thing, next week, Lord willing, hopefully I, if I'm still here, um, we're going to start looking at is the individual reflection of Christ. And so we're going to start talking about this evidence, not generically as fruit, but we're going to start talking about some specific fruit. What are some, some specific things that should be seen in our life? Well, ultimately then, what's the effect? Now, I have this evidence that's coming. There's fruit in my life. But ultimately, there's going to be this effect then that's in my life. There's going to be this, this, this overwhelming thing that's going to be seen and felt, if you would, in those who are submitting to the spiritual reign of Christ in their life. Turn with me to John 14. We were just there a little bit ago, but we want to look at it again. In John 14, go backwards, 26 and 27. I'll start at verse 25 for context. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I said to you. Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus said that his going away, what his ultimate gift that he was going to give to us was what? Peace. Okay? And we see it again in Philippians 2. I'm sorry, this is actually Philippians 4. Philippians 4, beginning verse 2. I flipped the 2 and the 4 there. Um, where Paul says to the church of Philippi, he says, I implore Yodii and, and, and implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now that goes all the way back to actually chapter 2, and that's probably why I put Philippians 2. Because in Philippians 2, we were encouraged, Paul encouraged the Philippians to have the mind of Christ. Okay, And so he says, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labor with me in the gospel, and Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord how often? Always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. And then he goes through the list of the things that we're supposed to meditate on, the things which are are true and noble and just and pure and lovely, of good report, and virtuous, praiseworthy. Okay, verse 9 at the end. These and the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. If you have that mind of Christ, okay, that Jesus was talking about, okay, and remember we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ, okay, and so if I'm conformed to the image of Christ, ultimately what am I going to have if I have his mindset? I'm going to have this tranquility. Do you remember last week we talked about the disposition, the disposition of the physical reign? And the disposition of the millennium was going to be peace, tranquility, shalom. Well, guess what? The concept's still the same. That for those who are submitting to the spiritual reign of Christ in their life today, do you know what's going to be evidenced? Shalom. There's going to be a tranquility. There's going to be a peace that passes 
understanding. Listen, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be um, tumultuous events in your life. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so as those tumultuous situations happen in my life, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to go back to the Lord. I'm supposed to go back to he who is sovereign over all the affairs of men. And I'm supposed to place my trust in him. He has a reason. He has a purpose. And all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine that they be conformed to the image of his son. And so God says, and he's, Paul is, is, is imploring Yodia and Sintiki because these are two women who are laboring, laboring in the gospel. These aren't, these aren't, um, unregenerate women. These are women who are actually, they're, they're actually serving, in, if you would, in the ministry. They're assisting Paul in the ministry. But somehow they have two different ideas of what needs to go on. And what are they doing? They're arguing. They're becoming bitter about it. And they're, they're arguing and their bitterness is spilling over into the body of Christ. And not only is it spilling over into the body of Christ, but let your moderation be made known unto who? All men. It's not just the body of Christ, but you know who sees it the most? It's the outsiders. How many of you have ever heard people refer to the people in church as hypocrites? Don't want to go there. You know? Listen, do you know why that is? I mean, we're all hypocrites, period, because we're sinners, okay? But do you know why hypocrisy reigns as it does? Because Christ doesn't reign as he ought to. When Christ is not reigning in your heart and in your life, hypocrisy will reign. Because you will pretend what? That he is. But act like he's not. And that's where we get into, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do the things that I say? There will be unity and tranquility, peace, that will be noted. Unity, as we talk about, that's the kind of the, 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 the outworking of peace, if you would. Unity in the church. There will be peace, tranquility in the, in the individual. Because even though the troublesome times will come, knowing that Jesus Christ is reigning in my life, and because he's reigning in my life, nothing else can what? Nothing can touch me unless he gives it permission to. He's Lord. You either believe he's Lord or he's not. I mean, is he God? Or is he not God? Is he in control of all things? Can Satan do things to me that he hasn't approved? You know, we can sit here and we can say intellectually, no. But you know what? The minute I start to get in the middle of it, I start to what? I murmur or I question. Theologically, I become like the Israelites and I begin to question God, telling him that what? He must not be omnipotent. Because very clearly, Satan been able to do something that he hasn't approved. Well, it's like I tell the, the teenagers last night with the victors, the time for them to decide that they believe in tithing and first fruit giving is not later when they get the job. It's now to study the scriptures and know what they believe so that when the time comes and all of a sudden the bills are coming and they're starting to question what they should do, that is not even an issue, that they know that not giving God what, what that, that 10% that's his, the first fruits that belong to him, is stealing. And if you're not giving it, and so this is not a message on giving, but you know we'll talk about that maybe as we do in the fruits. But anyways, the, the point is that 
that that's of a God thing, okay? And I've got to decide now, do I believe that God, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life? So, I ask you, who or what is sitting on the throne of your life? Is it Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of your life, or is it self? Who's reigning? Who decides what you're going to do? Now, again, if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, who's sitting on the throne? Self. Self is. It's not Jesus Christ. And the best thing that you can do today is going into a new year is become a new person, is to give your life to Jesus Christ. But the sad thing is, believers, we struggle with the same question. We can say when we got saved, I want you to reign in my life. But then all of a sudden, we decide to what? That's right, take the wheel again. We want to sit on the throne and put Jesus to the side as just a what? Counselor, a helper, advisor. Yeah, co-pilot. Yeah, I love that. The years ago when they used to have those those uh, things, you know, God is my co-pilot. I always wanted to pull the people over and say, "You get, change the bumper sticker." And, and I know they would look at me incredulously and say, "Get rid of it." He, God shouldn't be your co-pilot. He should be the pilot. You get over in the in, in the passenger seat. You know. Now I know you don't want to do that on the road, but you know. But the reality is that that God is the pilot. He ought to be the the one who is the the, the Lord of my life, telling me what to do, not just giving me advice okay jesus christ ought to be the one who's sitting and ruling in the throne of my life so the question is is he secondly is there then a need for you to repent to change the way you think we're getting ready to participate in communion communion is a time when we communicate to one another and to god that we're in what fellowship in koinonia with him We'll talk about that fellowship and talk about the, the fellowship of the church a couple months from now when we finally get to that part in the reflection of Christ as the body, as the, as, the, as the corporate reflection. But we're getting ready to have communion. Is there something that's in you right now that you know Jesus Christ isn't the Lord of your life? Whether it's for salvation or if you are saved and, and you've been holding back on that, that you need to allow him to be back on that throne. And finally, what decisions or commitments... Do you need to make? Don't leave today without making those commitments. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, you are Lord. And you reign sovereign over all the affairs of men. And regardless of whether I give you my heart, regardless of whether I I allow you in the throne of, of my life, you still reign. The difference is then how it affects my life. Lord, I pray that you would help me not to be anxious over things, but rather to, to trust you, Lord, to look to you as the one who is, is working in my life. Lord, to, to believe and to trust that you will provide in, for me and my family, that you will protect me and my family, and that when you allow turmoil, troublesome situations into my life, it is ultimately for my good though I may not understand it, though I may not comprehend what's happening at the time, Lord, that you're at work, whether it's for the good of me and my family or whether it is even for those who are 
or looking in from the outside. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to to trust and obey. Help us to live that life in Christ that you have predestined us to live. And Lord, I pray that you would give us discerning hearts then. Not judging hearts, but discerning hearts. That discern the spirits for what is true. As well, Lord, as we seek to discern others and uh, whether they're, they're of the faith or not. I know that ultimately you're the judge, and so I, I trust in you for that. But God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.